You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Let's start it off with Delaware football. Logical place to start. It's a big game this weekend for the Blue Hens, who are now three and two overall and one and one in conference play after their forty-three to twenty-eight victory against Richmond. Now it's number five Elon, who comes to town fresh off a twenty-seven to twenty-four upset victory in Harrisonburg against previously number two ranked James Madison. The biggest win by Elon in probably their their program history when you look at just the regular season maybe even if you include the playoffs it was the first time they ever beat JMU it was the first time that James Madison had lost a CIA regular season game since 2015 which speaks to the long-running success of that program of course the Dukes were national champions in 2016 so big 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 time win for Elon last weekend and they roll that momentum into a road game coming up to Newark this week and as we all know Every single game in the CAA is very important, but this one seems to be an even bigger test and an even bigger challenge and comes with the weight of being a huge reward if the Blue Hens can pull off the upset win, but also puts them in a little bit of a a backseat, a little bit of a hole to climb out of if they fall this weekend. If the Blue Hens win this game, they will go to 2-1 and in the CAA with wins against Richmond and Elon with a loss to Rhode Island. That would mean that there is no, there will be no undefeated team in the CIA barring any miraculous run. With that being said, we talked about and, how— And, you know, to, to credit of Towson and Rhode Island and Stony Brook right now, those teams, not to say they couldn't run the table. Do, given, barring any miraculous run by those three mm-hmm. teams, the 7-3 and three bench line that Delaware was at last year— might be more feasible and more playoff friendly than the eight and two, or eight and three, eight and three. Sorry, eight and three. Eight three and the se- they were seven and four last year, yeah. and they well, probably should have made it. Well, we talk about that, right? Um, and you mentioned that no team that was eight and three ever missed the playoffs in the CAA. Correct. That makes seven and four that much more feasible. If there's no undefeated team. There's no one above you. Teams are going to be floating around eight and three. Teams are going to be around seven and four. So if Delaware can get the win against Elon, they've already chunked out. Uh, a space against Elon if it comes down to it. They might warrant a spa- spot against JMU through the transitive property. It's a deep— Well, and let's not get ahead. JMU's not falling to seven no, wins. No, JM... JMU is still going to be an eight or nine win JMU's team the best the team. JM, JMU's is still the best team in the CAA. But when you look at it and these people are voting, because Delaware doesn't play JMU this year, so they have no— um, direct way to put Delaware and JMU spotting-wise, whether it be a difference in record, besides Elon, because Elon's the bridge factor, assuming Delaware beats the teams, uh, the easy ones. So this is the biggest game for Delaware season because this gives them a padding, because if they f- crumble, they're still good for the playoffs. True. I think it's not so much it allows you to make a case for them against James Madison as it is. It just gives you that signature win to go back to when you're putting Delaware's potential case up to another team. Elon, even if they do lose this weekend or if they lose later on this season, they will be considered a playoff team. This is a team that's going to make the playoffs. They're going to have eight or nine or maybe ten wins on the season with one or two losses, probably just maybe one loss in the CAA. Maybe they'll be undefeated in the CAA. But if Delaware has that win on their record against a team like this, then that is a big, big um, you know, you can really use that in the debate against other teams that would have similar records to Delaware. But, and an interesting thing that you put into what you said, and it's true to some extent, is it would be big if they handled the games that they're supposed to win. The tough thing about this conference right now is if you look at Delaware's schedule past this game, the 20th they play New Hampshire, their quarterback's back. New Hampshire might not be making the playoffs, but that's not an easy game on that's the road game. against a team that came into this season ranked above Delaware. The 27th, all of a sudden, Towson is a top 20 team. They come to Newark for homecoming. That's not an easy game. Then you get the 10th at Stony Brook, another ranked team. And then Villanova comes to Newark for the last game of the season. Or excuse me, yeah, they come to Newark last game of the season. Their quarterback's injured right now, so their playoff chances are pretty much shot. But if he comes back for that game, that's not an easy game. That's a you know, a team talent-wise that would be put in the top 25 with a healthy quarterback. So this game could really give Delaware a feeling of some security, albeit there'd still be a long, long way to go. 
but it would certainly make you feel more confident heading into that tough stretch knowing they can afford a loss or two because they have this win to lean back on. Whereas if they lose this game, they can't really slip up maybe more than one more time through that tough stretch at the end of the season. Eventually, though, to be a playoff team, they're going to have to beat a ranked team. You can't just beat the teams who aren't ranked because that puts you just middle of the pack, and that's not simply good enough to make the playoffs. You know what? If they win this game, starts to really loom in blue, the Blue Hens' heads, the week one game against URI. Because if the Blue Hens beat Elon, and the Blue Hens, let's say, t- took care of business on opening day and didn't fall 21-19 to Rhode Island, Delaware's 3-0 and in the CAA with one loss on the season. They're in a great spot. So the number spot. one team in the country. They're the, yeah. <laughs> they're in a great spot CAA-wise, great spot top 25-wise, and they are, I don't want to say smooth sailing, but a lot more confident than they are right now. Because if it gets down to it, we look at last year, it was that Towson game. That was the nail in the coffin. And Villanova. I mean, they had two games that they should have won both, but at least one. Of. It would be terrible to get down to the season and the very first game, the opening day game, be your nail in the coffin right then and there. And that's why we said going into that game, it was one you really wanted to win because we knew this would be a tough part of the schedule against CAA opponents. And Towson was, or excuse me, Rhode Island was one that you should have won. And that is going to be part of this discussion all season long it helps that the Rams have been playing very well and now are our top 25 team. It makes it look better in hindsight. But you look back to how that game played out itself, Delaware should have won. I mean, they, they had, we'll talk about it ad nauseum on this show. There were four different plays that one of them goes the opposite way. Delaware should have won. Now you have to give Rhode Island credit for winning that game. They have proven themselves over the course of, of the past few weeks. They're an undefeated CAA team as we sit here today on October 11th, but it does start start to sting a little bit when you try to make this CAA case. One way or the other, though, this game is huge against Elon this weekend. Listening to Blue End Sports Cage on 91.3 WVD and WVD HD1 Newark. Let's talk about the Phoenix on the field. Number one rushing attack in the CAA, led by Running back Malcolm Summers, who's averaging 118 rushing yards per game. He had over 180 last week against James Madison, including a career-long 59-yarder, which came late in the fourth quarter to really help the Elon Phoenix come back into that game and eventually win it. Delaware's ranked fourth in run defense. It has been a calling card for the Blue Hens these past couple of seasons. They've been strong in the front seven. How do you see that matchup between the number one rushing attack and the number four run defense? shaking out this weekend. We saw when we went over um, to travel to North Dakota State that Delaware was very sound in keeping the keeping the containment. We, we saw Delaware collapse the pocket well on Easton Stick. The second half of it, tackling the quarterback, they didn't do that well in given Stick as a talented player. Elon has this or Ray, and I was watching one of their game films. I want to say it was from last year, so I don't know exactly how consistent it's going to be, where they line their running back anywhere. They line him to the left, the right, and behind the quarterback frequently. It's not like some teams normally line him up in the eye formation and then bring him to his side for a few plays. This is a team that rotates constantly. So for Delaware, their big key is what they did against North Dakota State, crash the box, contain the box, and now they have to go to the next level and get the tackle when needed. What this offense will do, and it's similar if you're a longtime Blue Hen fan and you can remember back to the KC Keeler era, they'll come to the line of scrimmage in their spread formation, 11 personnel, maybe 10 personnel, and they get up to the line, they look at how the defense is set up, then they look to the sideline. They take the signals then in from the sideline, the different quarterbacks or the cards, whatever, and then they adjust the play. So that's when Malcolm Summers, you know, goes behind the quarterback into pistol, or he rotates from the left side Didn't to the Virginia right Tech side. Didn't Virginia Tech do that last year? Virginia Tech will do that. A lot of teams, it's kind of a, it's not really a, you don't call it really a hurry up offense, but it's just a way for them to communicate the play and for the coaches to really be involved in the down to down. So the the reading of the defense isn't done pre-snap by the quarterback. It's done by the coaching staff. And then they relay the adjustments to the quarterback 
and to the rest of the, you know, the protection to the offensive line, the routes, the receivers, the responsibilities to the running backs in the backfield. Um, so that's, you know, that's just a little bit of what to expect in that department this weekend. Flipping to the other side of the football, Delaware had a big day offensively, 43 points a season high, the most they've scored since the Richmond game in 2017. Pat Kehoe, a career high, 291 passing yards on just 11 completions. So it was really about the deep ball. What do you take away from the Delaware offensive's performance against Richmond, and what will they need to do against the Phoenix? Richmond really loaded the box against Delaware. They pretty much every play had a roaming man stay in the box to try and cut off Kenai Kane and Lee. That opened this passing attack, and Delaware um, more frequently went three wide, sticking Mm -hmm. Vinny Papali in. Um, And that just let Kehoe do what he wanted to do. Um, Joe Walker and Jamie Jarman are good enough to draw man coverage, and Joe Walker's probably good enough to draw safety, uh, a free roamer. And then Vinny Papali feasted. He and then Charles Scarf came in, had a few good plays. Owen Tyler had a few good plays. Scarf ca- catching a touchdown was because they loaded the box expecting Kanai Kane or uh, Lee to run it in, and they left Scarf almost unguarded. It was a open field, and Pat Kehoe did what any sound quarterback should do, and that's spread it out and move the ball downfield. What do you expect to see them try to come out and do against Elon? Do you think they'll try to go back and establish the running game, which has struggled a bit this year? Do you think they'll be airing the ball out like they did against Richmond? What do you expect to see this Saturday, based on what you saw last Saturday? I think they're going to play a bit more conservatively. Um, And I'm not saying a bit more conservatively like you normally would against this good of a team coming in. I mean really conservatively. I think they're going to run it first, try to match run for run, which is a large task, but they're going to try to match the pace of the game. They're not going to try to let Elon run the ball, run it, run it, run it, pass it in for a touchdown, and then Delaware comes out four or five pass plays, let's say, moves it downfield. Your defense comes out and has to guard the run again. They're going to be nicer to the defense than they were in North Dakota State. They're going to run the ball a little more, move the chains a few more times, let the defense rest, and if need be, if it becomes either a high-scoring game or a play-from-behind game, then you'll kind of see them open the three wide a little more, bring in a two tight end set, kind of move Lee. He caught a few passes. That was actually, fun fact, the first reception for a running back this season. Came in week five. Came in week game five. Game five. Game five against Richmond, which it's kind a of a alarming, problem. Yeah. Kind of a problem. But they might need to do that a little more uh, this upcoming week. And do you think Elon. they do that even if the ground game, you know, what if they go three and out, three and out? Does... does does it change then? Because that's sort of what happened against North Dakota State, with the exception of that first interception. When they come out there on drives two and three, they try to run the ball on first and second down. Then they're left with these third and long situations that they were unable to convert. A lot of pressure on Kehoe, too, which was a factor in that. But do you think they, they stick to it even if it struggles in drives one, two, and three? When I was talking to one of my friends about this, I would not be surprised if Delaware goes three running backs deep. If we see whether it be Corey Sproul come in and get a few more touches to keep all the legs fresh because we're going to need all three of these backs to both play. Uh, Lee uh, most likely in the passing downs. I don't even know who's the passing back and can I came to be the barrel down back. So I think they're going to go three deep and I think it will change. If they go three and out, three and out, they'll have to adjust the game plan because you can't let Elon get ahead get of you. Get away from you. Yeah, you have to keep them. If it means throwing a reverse flea flicker to Joe Walker, hit Jamie Jarman for 40 plus yards, Dude, so be it. Yeah. Just got to keep, keep with the team. Get the ball in Joe Walker's hands. That's a message that should be in the locker room probably every week because the games where he's out there getting opportunities to make plays are the games that they're putting up twenty-seven or 37 against Lafayette, 43 against Richmond, 27 or whatever it was against Cornell when he probably had his first true big game of this season, 31 points last year in his coming out party against Maine. Do you agree with this statement that he is their most explosive player offensively and probably their one true playmaker on the offense? Because I don't think you can really count any of the running backs as a playmaker. And among the receiver group, to me, he's the one who stands out the most. I'm going to say that he is, yes, he's the best offensive player and he's the spark. But to pin somebody else up there, we, Nick and I talked about it on the broadcast, but Vinny Papali has really been playing well. Uh, the big catch he had last week was a great route and an even better throw by Kehoe. 
And in those games, he was the best receiver in North Dakota State, given Joe Walker who drew extra coverage, but he's the, be- he's the best receiver in North Dakota State. And he is slowly clawing at that wide receiver two position from Jamie Jarman, who has already fell out of wide receiver one, probably in week three or game three. Uh, this is kind of Vinny Papali's opportunity, and I think they're going to need him really bad against Elon on those third and ones, third and twos, that you need that slant route, you need that Charles Scarf, Owen Tyler body, Vinny Papali would be the one to do it. You're listening to Blue Line Sports Cage on 91.3 WVD and WVD HD1 Newark with Jake Lampert. I'm Brandon Hovick talking Blue Hens football off the top of the show today as Delaware prepares for number five Elon this Saturday at Delaware Stadium. Going back to the ground game for a quick couple of notes before we hit a break. Delaware is averaging less than four yards per carry this season. The past three seasons before 2018, they were the second best running offense. In two of those seasons, they averaged over 200 yards per carry. Albeit the passing offense in those three seasons hovered just above or just below 100 passing yards per game, so they needed to run the football a lot more than they do now. But is it is it important for them to be able to run the football with more success than they have so far this season? Um or, you know, are they at a point where they can rely on the passing game if the running game isn't successful or where it was a season ago? I think they can kind of lay off the run game a little bit. Um, one of the sections we have, the probably next one we'll talk about is, is the the big facts, and now we're going to kind of talk about it later in the show. But the first one is that Joe Walker has two rece- receiving games of over 100 yards this year. No player had a one receiving game of 100 yards last year. Jamin Jarvin was the highest with 84 receiving yards and that came against Cornell. They might not need to be so reliable. They can kind of go to the air. Kehoe has the arm, and then Walker's their playmaker. He's their talented, explosive playmaker, especially against Elon. If the run doesn't work, they're going to be straight into the air, and I think they'll be more um, quick to adjust than they were last year or two years ago when all they had was the run game, and they'll give it a quarter to let the run game spark. Four or five drives in the first quarter, if they even get that many, They'll start moving to the pass. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We were happy to have Jack Haley join us earlier this afternoon for a little conversation about the Phoenix and his perspective on the Blue Hens. Uh, But talking about this Elon Phoenix team that under second year head coach Kurt Signetti has made a big jump last year. They went from a two and nine team to an eight and three playoff team this year. They're on their way to being the best team in the CAA. They have the inside track after that win against James Madison. We'll see if they hold on. It's their first time in the top five FCS national ranking in 10 years and their highest ranking ever since they joined the CAA a few seasons ago. This obviously uh, a very big game for them as well to come on the road in back-to-back weeks and try to avoid that letdown after such an emotional win against the Dukes in Harrisonburg just a few days ago. All right, without any further ado, we'll throw it to our conversation from earlier this afternoon with Jack Haley, the sports director of the Elon News Network down in North Carolina. And now I'm joined by the sports director of the Elon News Network, Jack Haley. Jack, obviously a big win last week for the Phoenix, who defeated James Madison 27-24. to What was the significance of that win for the program and for this season's team moving forward? Absolutely. Well, speaking from the program standpoint, this is really the culmination of a, a change of culture that head coach Kurt Signetti has brought in. He has really worked on getting this team to where he wants it to be. And this certainly seemed like um, a bit of the crowning achievement, really showing that he has been able to transform the program. Uh, following the win, this is the highest Elon has been ranked since 2008. They were ranked number three in the country then. Uh, first program win over James Madison. And just to give a little bit of context to it, they had lost 51 nothing in 2015, and then they lost by 49 points in 2016. So this is not – this is a win against a team that we have not even been able to come close to in the past couple of years. And this was also the first top five win in uh, the D1 era for Elon. So with all that said, that is the – kind of historical context now going into what it means for the rest of the season this really gives elon a great chance to control their destiny in the caa um they have a tough road ahead 
playing against Udell this weekend and then Richmond the following weekend. But then they close the season with three straight games against ranked opponents. This this is not an easy road by any means for Elon. But if they are able to get through it unscathed and un, unscathed, excuse me, uh, they would they would have a very legitimate chance of winning the CAA. So um, that's kind of what it gives. And it gives confidence to the team, obviously, uh, moving forward. But I think the biggest thing for Elon is they need to make sure that they uh, they're staying focused and that this is not the end of the road for the season. They're just at the halfway point. One of the things that stood out to me that Kurt Signetti said Monday on the weekly CAA teleconference call was that this is early in the season, and he really stressed how talented a league the CAA is and saying that he and his players understand that this can't necessarily be it for them. You know, it's a huge win. It means a lot this season. It puts them, like you said, in the driver's seat as far as not just making the playoffs, but winning this conference, which is something that nobody else has really had the chance to think about because JMU's been so good. Uh, But they really stressed there's a long way to go in this season and that this can't be the finish line. Um, You know, Where do you see this team potentially going? Uh, They're the favorites this weekend on the road against Delaware. They'll be the favorites against Richmond. There are some other good teams in the CAA that they'll have to face, but where's the ceiling for them? beyond just this regular season, looking down the road to the FCS playoffs. One thing that um, that is really important following this win, understanding, like you said, that this is not the end of the road for the program. So um, I think it is fairly reasonable to say that this team has a very good shot of making the FCS playoffs, but it really is going to, in my mind, come down to that final regular season game on the road against the University of Maine, a team that's ranked right now, um, not only for their confidence going into the uh, going into the playoffs, but then to see how they fare against another uh, good team on the road. There are there are a lot of variables and the CAA in my opinion, I think it's shared by a lot of people is the best conference in the FCS. This is not a, uh, this is not an easy conference to win past JMU. There are so many good teams and I think that will really help for the playoffs preparing and getting the chance to play such high caliber opponents. Uh, No matter who they run into down the road, I feel like they have now, proven to themselves that they can play at the highest level uh, in the FCS and compete with every team. We're talking to Jack Haley of the Elon News Network. Taking it to the field now, what's been the key to success through the beginning portion of this season for Elon? When you look at it from the outside in, Malcolm Summers is obviously the first name that jumps out. But can you describe offensively and defensively what they've been able to do to be so successful through the first portion of this year? As you mentioned, Malcolm Summers has been absolutely electric for Elon. Uh, losing him last year certainly was a blow, and you kind of think they were able to be so successful last year what it would have been like to have a healthy Summers for the entire season. But he really gets it going. He is one of the top running backs in the CAA, putting up over averaging over 150 yards per game. Uh, he's broken off now three runs of 50 yards or more in the season. Um, and I think the reason he's able to get it going is because of the guy that stands next to him in the backfield, sophomore quarterback Davis Cheek. He's playing with a lot of confidence this year, which I don't think we saw as much last year because he was still fighting for that starting job two or three weeks into the season. Um, But he's completed 66% of his passes, and he really opens up the offense. Uh, And then on the defensive side of the ball, it's really been – Defense by committee. They have 11 total takeaways this year. Uh, usual suspects like Warren Messer and Greg Liggs Jr. have been absolutely terrorizing opponents. Uh, and then even guys like Marcus Willoughby, guys that maybe fly under the radar a little bit, um, have really been putting in some solid, solid games. He was Marcus Willoughby was named CAA Defensive Player of the Week, I believe it was two weeks ago after the UNH game. Um and he has nine tackles for loss leading the team. Um, you know, there are 
they're getting production pretty much everywhere they need to out of the defense to really complement this offense because they're not putting up 60 points a game, 50 points a game. But they are the uh, the offense has been able to consistently put up 30 points a game, which um, when when you have the other side of the ball playing as well as they can, it puts them in a good position to win. Elon plays a 3-4 defense like Delaware, and it's one of the things the Blue Hens talked about earlier this week, that it's a different look than a lot of other teams will give them. It's sometimes more of a 3-3-5 where there's a lot more uh, space in terms of how spread the defense is. There are you know, smaller, faster players around the defensive area, and you see different looks blitzing-wise because you can only count on those three down linemen to come with pressure instead of the traditional four. Uh, can you give any more insight into what Blue Hen fans can expect to see from the Elon defense this weekend? Uh, they should look for a lot of Phoenix in the backfield, quite honestly. Um, the line has been able to get a good push uh, throughout the season. They have been able to get behind um, behind the line of scrimmage. They have 44 tackles for loss this year. Um the the Phoenix have been really able to put a lot of pressure on opposing quarterbacks and forcing running backs to try and bounce it to the outside um, where their secondary has been able to pick up some plays. So I think that's another one of the strong points of uh, Elon defense. We're with Jack Haley of the Elon News Network here on Blue Hen Sports Cage, taking it to the keys on the field for Elon, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Delaware. You know, what are the things that Elon will want to do to come away with the victory? What do they need to establish on both sides of the football uh, in their in their typical wins this season? And if you know anything that can apply specifically to this Delaware matchup too? Sure. So I think early on in the game, uh, one of the things Kurt Zignetti has done well is he runs a hurry-up offense but he'll only do it for a couple specific drives. So he has done it in the first drive of almost every game this year where he uh, he runs a hurry up and he gets the offense moving downfield. Um, we saw it against James Madison. We saw it against uh, University of New Hampshire. And we actually saw at the end of the game, the final drive for Elon, a, a bit of that was induced by how much time was left on the uh, on the clock. But they run it effectively and it really gives the offense um, some, some flow and some momentum going into the rest of the drives for, uh, for the game. Also um, spreading the ball has been something that Elon, it was one of the keys that Elon used to beat JMU where their, uh, their number one receiver is sophomore Cortez weeks. And he only had two catches against JMU, but guys like uh, Corey Joyner and uh, and some other receivers were really able to step up, and Davis Sheik was able to find those guys, maybe in check down situations, things like that. So I think that is something, those are two things that you're going to see uh, when Elon takes a field on Saturday. You're going to have uh, a couple up-tempo drives to get the offense going, and one of their big keys is they're going to need to be able to spread the ball and not just rely on a single receiver to uh, to carry the load. When you look at Delaware, are there certain areas that could give Elon problems that are some of Delaware's strengths or, you know, that line up with weaknesses on the Elon team? Uh, University of Delaware is not a team to be looked over. I think they're a lot better than their 3-2 and two record uh, shows. They're putting up some big points. I I believe there's a a big win against um against Lafayette. Yep. If I'm correct. Yep. Right. So this is not not a team uh to look over. They are they're a disciplined team, and they are um they're a team that really can give uh, Elon some fits. There's no doubt about that. Does the atmosphere, does that play a role in this game? Obviously, last week, Elon goes into Harrisonburg, which is, by pretty much everybody's account, the hardest place to play in the CAA right now. But Delaware Stadium's also a bigger venue than Elon traditionally playing in. 
Is that a factor coming into this game this weekend? I don't know if that's as big of a factor, like you mentioned, coming off of a game in Harrisonburg where uh, it's one of the tougher places to play in in the FCS. Um, Elon, I feel, has been able to be pretty well composed in whatever situations they play because they also played in their first game of the year at Raymond Jones Stadium down in Florida where the Tampa, uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers play. Um, and though they lost that game, I don't think the the stage got got the best of them. So I think they are well-versed in playing in larger stadiums. And I believe it's your homecoming, correct? Uh, parents and family weekend, but one of the gotcha. bigger weekends here, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you know it's going to be a packed – it's going to be packed stands. It's going to be a large crowd on hand. Um, but I don't think the um, the off-the-field presence will be as disruptive as the on-field presence of the Blue Hens. Gotcha. We're talking with Jack Haley of the Elon News Network ahead of Delaware's matchup this weekend against the number 5-ranked Elon Phoenix – what else are you looking out for as we wrap things up here on Blue Hen Sports Cage? What will you be watching for Saturday afternoon? Saturday, um, I think a lot of people are really looking to see how Elon responds to this win. Um, it would be very easy, I think, to to assume that Elon has a bit of a hangover or they're looking too far ahead to those three ranked games at the end of the year um, and overlook the University of Delaware, but I think at the end of the day, Kurt Signetti is going to do a good job of getting these guys focused and getting these guys prepared. Um, I would be interested to see if he has any um, any lineup changes or if he has any um, any adjustments coming off of the uh, of the James Madison game. It's going to be um, personally, I think it's going to be one of the bigger tests of the year to see how Elon responds. Cause when you get down the road into uh, playoff playoff games, every game is a big game and you can't, you can't overlook any of them. So uh, that's something I'm going to be watching for. All right. It should be a good one. 3:30 PM is the kickoff between the Phoenix and the blue hens this weekend at Delaware stadium on parents and family weekend. Jack, thank you very much for joining me on Blue Hen Sports Cage. Thanks for having me on. Blue Hen Sports Cage returns after this. We're going to take a few moments now to take a look at the rest of the CAA because last week was a pretty big week and the conference continues to be very successful. Six teams ranked inside the top 25 for the sixth consecutive week. It's been the most for any conference every single week. So if you have any questions about which conference is the best at the FCS level, that should probably answer that question. The CIA has dominated Elon JMU. They're still the top two teams at five and six, respectively. But up and down the board, you'll find Towson, Stony Brook, Maine, Rhode Island in that top 25. And then with the Blue Hens uh, just outside looking in in the others receiving votes category. But one of the games that we want to highlight, Towson, a dominant win over Stony Brook, 52-28. to The Tigers firmly in the top 25 now. How legit is this team, Jake? I I think they're a legit football team. And to be um, kind of pessimistic, not much has changed since last season for this team. Obviously, they have a few new names and uh, a last name that you might be fairly <laughs> familiar with if you're a Blue Hand fan, and that's Flacco. And not Tom, uh, Joe, but Tom Flacco. And he is kind of playing with a chip on his shoulder. The head coach, Rob Ambrose, when said that he's playing like he has a chip on his shoulder. He's playing like a Flacco. He's playing like a Flacco in the CAA, just beating up on teams. They are starting the season 4-1. and one. They are in as about as good as a position as it gets. And I think this is a serious team to consider uh, making the playoffs, but I'm not too cons- um, scared of them in the playoffs. Okay. I think that's fair. If they can be in that 7-8 win category, so far they've put together 
a good case for the playoffs, but maybe kind of like Elon last year, it's like, okay, when we get there, I don't know how many teams are going to be scared of them yet yeah. because they haven't yet really proved themselves on that stage. But if you can make it out of the CIA and into the playoffs, you have to be a pretty decent team at the very least. Maine this past weekend knocks off Villanova 13-10, to starting with the Wildcats. I mean, it's tough. No Zach Bednarczyk for them for the second straight week. They fall to 0-3 in the conference, but Narchik is day-to-day. They don't know if he's going to play next week. If he doesn't, it's Jack Shetlick who started the last game of the season against the Blue Hens last year. But the Wildcats already 0-3 in conference play. They're 3-3 overall. They started so strong. A win against Temple and out of conference play. They looked really strong, and then the wheels kind of falling off. Is there a way that this team climbs back into the conversation, or is it over for the Wildcats? They don't look very good. Their run game has stalled. Um, right, yeah, what happened to Aaron Forbes? Yeah. Dude was dude was great against the Blue Hens last year. Their run game stalled. Yeah, he had 200 and something yards. Well, not just him, but that team put up 200-plus yeah. yeah, yards against the Blue Hens. Yeah, he had at least 100-something himself. Um, that, without the run game, and now with a new quarterback, that's it. That's a tough combination to try to win with. Is this team still a viable team uh, to win against the bottom half of the CAA? Sure. Mm-hmm. But They're a worthy opponent. against the top half of the CAA, uh, it's going to be tough. Maine, 2-0 in conference play. They're another team in the top 25, 3-2 overall. What do you see from the Black Bears? They can spread the ball. They have a lot of talent players. Um, and what I looked at the stat sheet, they have – they went – six deep in the running back position and this wasn't a game where you bring in your backups right they only won by three it was yeah. 13 to 10 they had seven deep in the wide receiver position so or the pass catching position i said uh, i should say some of them could be the running backs they're deep they can spread the ball out they can utilize different players different names and i think that's what's keeping them afloat that they are not just relying on one or two people to try and win the game for them every week you're listening to blue hen sports cage on 91.3 wvd brandon Hovac, jake lampert New Hampshire defeated Holy Cross, almost said Stony Cross, Holy Cross, 28 to nothing last week for their first win of the season. Overall, not just conference play. Quarterback Trevor Knight made his return. The CAA preseason player of the year was injured in New Hampshire's week one loss against Maine. He comes back a pretty good showing, 22 of 38 passing, 238 passing yards and four passing touchdowns. It's an impressive win, and certainly New Hampshire's not a team to be taken easily or taken lightly. But at 1-4 overall, 0-2 in the CAA, is it is it already over? Is it too too little too late to get Trevor Knight back at this point in the season? Or can New Hampshire still make a run to continue that 14-year playoff streak? I think it's tough because their next two CAA games on the schedule are Stony Brook, who is Ranked, a, just yeah. a tough football team, um, who I was very low on. And Delaware, who is a very tough football team. And then they have Nova and James Madison right after that. And if they're in the bottom half of the CAA, like I just said, Villanova can make it interesting. I think, is it out of the question? Right, and they're probably going to lose to JMU, so there's there's your third loss, even if you beat all those other teams. Is it out of the question? No. Trevor Knight is a talented football player. Can he make it happen? Sure. Will he make it happen? The chances are very low. William & Mary got their first CAA win, and I— in at least over a year. They didn't win a CAA game at all last year. Maybe this is kind of a, a point to take a, a pat on the back for Delaware fans that might still be feeling down about this team and the way they've been playing recently and kind of remember, at least you're not William & Mary. I mean, how dreadful would that be to go through all of last year, a game, or I guess five games into this season without a CAA win? They finally get one on the board probably not going to look at a postseason they actually don't play Delaware this year but just something of note to think about you know how that would go over you know they haven't made the playoffs here since 2010 but at least they've been winning a couple a handful of CAA games it was wasn't it two yeah the 2016 was when William Delaware I should say had that collapse where yeah, Joe that, Walker not last year but the year before kind of just forgot how to play football and threw a few key picks, and they ended up losing that game 24-17. So it's great to see a team that, um, not not that they knocked Delaware out of the playoffs. Delaware, right. not Delaware a playoff did a team lot of that to themselves. <laughs> yeah, uh, but a team that kind of gave you your signature loss of the 2016 season. Um, yeah, I mean, that l- precipitated l- all of this change. 
two days later or a day later, Dave Brock is out as head coach, which was very sudden. I don't think many expected that move to happen. At It was basically at this point of the season. I think that was the fifth game of the year or maybe the sixth game. I think it put him at two and four. So it was that kind of swing game where you could have been three and three or two and four. They lose having led 14 to seven going into, or excuse me, 14 to three mm-hmm. into the fourth quarter. The pick six by Aaron Swinton, mistake after mistake after mistake. And here we are with Danny Rocco a couple of years later. Last year, Delaware handled business 17 to nothing over William and Mary. Again, they don't get the Colonials this year, but William and Mary does finally get a CAA win to put them on the board. As we take a look at it, still a lot of play to go, but at the top, it's Elon, Rhode Island, Towson, and Maine, all at 2-0 and in the conference. James Madison and Stony Brook at 2-1. and Delaware and William & Mary at 1-1. One and one. And then Albany, New Hampshire, Villanova, and Richmond, winless in the bottom of the CAA. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark. We're excited to introduce a new segment. We're going to start it first with Delaware football, but it's something that will kind of apply to whatever is the big news in sports, whatever we want to break down further, and we're calling it Big Facts. Why? Because Big Facts is important. These are going to be three things that make or break Delaware's game this weekend against Elon. In the future, they could be three big facts on the NBA season or whatever's happening in the NFL, three big facts on the NFC Conference Championship game. It'll change week to week, but we're starting it off, Jake, with some hashtag big facts on this weekend's game for Delaware against Elon. Give me your first big fact. My first big fact is a bit number heavy, and this is the takeaways. They had five interceptions against Richmond. They broke their season high, and they broke their season high of last year. Their highest was four, and you look at this Elon game, that is their key to victory. It is the takeaways. They need to win the turnover battle because Elon can score, Elon can play, and Elon can run the football. So the more time of possession you give them, the less anything you have. You can't have the momentum, you can't have the ball, and you can't do anything. Delaware's first big fact, control the turnovers, control the win. On Monday, Danny Rocco said that that was their biggest point of emphasis during the open date. They went back and looked at how can we get more takeaways? And it certainly made a difference right away in that game against Richmond. They doubled their season total in takeaways. Six against Richmond, six in the previous four games before then. Delaware was in the bottom of the CAA and in that category going into the Richmond game. They come out of it toward the top. Last year, Delaware was one of the best teams, not just in the CAA, but in the nation in terms of turnover margin. They're getting back to that so far to this point this year. That's definitely, in my opinion as well, a big fact for this weekend. Can they keep Elon's offense off the field, give the offense short fields to take advantage of? Big fact number two. Second big fact is the rushing yards given up. Their season high last year was a team we just talked about. It was Villanova who ran all over them for 261 yards last year, November 18th. Two years ago, they gave up two games of 300-plus yards on the ground. One of them was James Madison, and the other one I want to say was Stony Brook, but I don't think that's correct. James Madison was 398. You need to control the run. We talked about how talented Elon is on the ground. You need to control this run game. Contain. If they get two or three yards on you, four or five yards per run, not great, but you can't let them get big play first downs all on runs. And we talked about it earlier in the show. Elon is the top rushing team coming into this matchup. Malcolm Summers is the CAA's leading rusher. He's averaging 118 rushing yards per game. He had 189 last week against James Madison, which is one of the best defenses in the CAA. They came into that game against Elon, allowing eight points per game in their first few matchups of the season. They gave up 27 to the Phoenix But it's not just Malcolm Summers. They have a very talented backup in Deshaun McNair, who took over for Summers last season with, I think, about five games to go in the regular season when Summers had a season-ending injury. So beyond Summers, they have a 1-2 attack that they're very confident in. They want to establish the run. They, as Danny Rocco said on Monday, have a lot of run-pass options. The RPOs that you hear people talking all about now in game broadcasts, they'll pull that trick out of the bag too where it really is a pass but it's more of just an extension of their running game when they get four or five yards out of those little flicks to the backside when the attention's going to the running back so certainly Delaware will have their hands full with one of the CAA's better teams in that department 
The third fact comes on the offensive end for the Blue Hens, and that last week they had three plays of 45-plus yards. One of them was a sideline grab by Vinny Papali. The other, Joe Walker, wide open, did his job. And the third was a Joe Walker pass to Jamie Jarman on a flea flicker, where Jamie Jarman made a really good catch against single coverage deep towards the end zone. They need to keep those explosive plays going. They had three against Cornell, one against North Dakota State, and they need to do that against Elon. Keep the scoring high, keep the pace high, and keep the morale high. Isn't it kind of funny that now opposing coaches, when you ask them about Delaware, they're saying these guys are making big plays down the field? I mean, because it's been just such the opposite for all the time that I've been here and really the last four or five years where they haven't had that big playability. And all of a sudden, everybody, you know, not only are they saying, oh, yeah, you got to respect the tradition of Delaware. You know, these guys are hungry. Danny's going to get them back to where they were. They're making big plays down the field. And you're like, what? Big plays down? You mean you mean they're running the ball? And it's, no, they're not running the ball very well right now. But they are completing those big passes down the field. And we talked about it earlier. Joe Walker's been the beneficiary of most of those 70-yard catch last week against Richmond. A couple big catches against Cornell in that win in Week 3. I think he needs to be a big part of the game plan. And then you you spotlighted him earlier, Jake. Vinny Papali as another guy who's gotten himself more involved. And I think they should continue that trend of having more three-receiver sets. They started the season wanting to be a lot of two-tight-end personnel, a lot of pounding and power football. But perhaps they're a little bit better suited to be more modern and have that slot guy, Vinny Papali, out on the field a little bit more and make some more of these big plays. I agree, and I think three wide is going to be something you're going to see a lot of if you're at this game. You're going to see Papali, Jarman, and Walker, and then you might see two tight end sets. Owen Tyler has gained more and more popularity over this Blue Hen offense. Uh, I don't think he's in any way um, threatening Charles Scarf for a starting tight end job because Scarf has uh, become a person. Again, last year he was kind of invisible, and this year he has stepped himself up. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast. Now joined by Nick DeLaglio, one of our broadcasters with WVUD Sports. What's going on, Nick? Not much. Thanks for having me. No problem. We're going to go through our top 10 playmakers in the NFL. So these are running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, the guys who make the big plays on Sundays. We're going to rank them 10 through 1 individually. And the way we're going to do this is each of us are first going to reveal our 10 through 6. So we'll run through them the other two will react to that 10 through 6, and then we'll go 5 down to 1, 1 by 1. So we'll do 5, 5, 5, 4, 4, 4, and so on. So I'll let you go first, Nick, as our guest. Okay. Give us your 10 through 6 if you're ready. All right. Um, no, yeah, I'm good now. I had two quarterbacks in there because there was a little miscommunication, but I still feel decently confident in my list. Okay. I'm just renumbering them so I know where to stop. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Okay. So at 10... I have uh, wide receiver Adam Thielen from the Vikings. Okay. At nine, I have the running back from the Pittsburgh Steelers, James Conner. At eight, I have another. I have, these are a lot of. Some of these are bold. I like we should have did. I don't know if I texted you. If you have Le'Veon Bell on your top ten. Oh no. Okay. Cool. No, I cool. we're not. I, counting. I thought we were doing this season, like yeah. through the okay, first five cool, weeks. Cool. Cool. Some of mine are a little juicy. So we got eight. <laughs> I have Joe Mixon, running back from the Bengals. That's coming in hot. Spicy. He's coming in That's hot. Spicy. He has been injured, but I'll I'll explain myself on that. Seven, Calvin Ridley, wide receiver from Equally the as spicy. Atlanta Falcons. I know that you have a lot of issues with Julio Jones, so I thought you'd like that one a little bit. And then at six, I have one that's probably not uh, as bold. I have Michael Thomas, the wide receiver from the okay. uh, New Orleans Saints. I don't have Michael Thomas in my top ten. Oh. Uh, we'll, get, my- we'll get to you in a little bit, but Jake, your reactions to Nick's... 10 through 6. Incredibly spicy from yeah, top that's, to bottom. Yeah, that's hot. I, I mean, think James I never, Conner... I never once had Calvin Ridley cross my mind. James Conner crossed no my offense. mind. He did not make my uh-huh. list or my honorable mentions list, but he definitely crossed my mind. My thought was, well, I had two quarterbacks there, so originally I didn't have Conner and Thielen in it. I had Ridley and Mixon to close it out because I thought they'd just be spicy, interesting guys. <laughs> and I think... I like, I like your style. If he you does take, it for I the like spicy the factor. I figured style. I had to add some flair I in there. I appreciate that. I think... Mixon on the Bengals, he adds a whole other factor to that team, and they did lose one game where he was injured. I just think he's been playing great this year, and I like him, so I think he's definitely up there. And Calvin Ridley, he's been the main focus of the Atlanta Falcons offense. I mean, you could attribute some of that to double-teaming Julio here and there, but for the most part, I think Ridley's definitely balled out, and he's been great. So I back myself up on those two so far. All right, let's go to you, Jake. Ten through six. My number ten on my list is David Johnson. Okay. My number nine on my list is Deshaun Jackson. 
My number eight on my list is Golden Tate. My number seven. On your list. Mm-hmm. My number seven is DeAndre Hopkins. And are we saying six or holding six? Six. My number six is Antonio Brown. Okay, give me the who is your Deshaun Jackson? Give me the case for Deshaun Jackson. Deshaun Jackson is perhaps one of the best vertical threats still playing in the NFL. He is when his, his time on the Eagles, his time on the Redskins, and now his time on the Buccaneers. He has thrived on vertical passes. All of his quarterbacks, even Kirk Cousins, knew that when Deshaun Jackson's on a fly route, you throw that ball deep and you let Deshaun Jackson do his job. That's why he's on my top 10 playmaker list. Jackson was an honorable mention. For, well, he was an honorable. I thought about him. I think you have a bunch of names. You have some good guys, but I think you have some big names that really haven't produced as much as you think. I think it starts with David Johnson. I mean, we haven't seen that much from him also because his offense isn't the best. I think Antonio Brown's a name I thought about here and there, but... I didn't have him in my top ten. I'm going to be honest. He's not, uh, preview my one through five. I just don't think he's done enough. And I, I like Juju, honestly, more than him thus far. Brandon, hit us with it. All right, my ten through six as we break down the top ten NFL playmakers on the cage. Starting off with number ten, the tight end from the Philadelphia Eagles, Zach Ertz. I did not have a tight end on my list, and my tight end on honorable mentions was Travis Kelsey. Kelsey. Agreed. Zach Ertz, third in the NFL in receptions. He's the top tight end in receiving yards at ninth in the league. Number nine, Tyreek Hill of the Kansas City Chiefs. Number eight, Julio Jones of the Falcons. Number seven, Antonio Brown. And number six, Alvin Kamara of the Saints. What reasoning do you have with putting Alvin Kamara so far up on your top ten list? I mean, I feel like Nick and I can both— yes realize that we have him low on our list because he has been the most productive running back in football. He is one of the best dual threat running backs in football in his second year in the NFL. Where do you find Alvin Kamara falling that, I guess, high on your list? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I love the guy. I mean, I think he's he's one of the toughest guys to, to have to play defense against because he's so versatile, right? That's something I valued in my list where these guys who like Tyreek Hill, like Kamara – can take it in a variety of ways. He can take you down the field in the receiving game. He can run outside the tackles. He can run inside the tackles. He's got the complete package. So, I mean, I guess I would just have to say I like the guys I put ahead of him better. There's really there's really no flaws in Kamara's game. Um, you know, I, I love the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a little disappointed that Mark Ingram's yeah. back because I think we're going to see a little <laughs> bit less of Kamara, which is probably smart for the Saints to make sure that he's ready to roll when they make it to the playoffs. But as far as just watching the game, it was fun to see those stat lines when he was getting 20 carries and 10 catches and running all over people. Um, so I think that he'll, his production is going to go down a little bit, so maybe that's a little knock on him. But from a playmaking perspective, I guess I just have to say I like the guys ahead of him more because I, I really love Alvin Kamara. No, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I think he, I think marking definitely hurts his production moving forward. But then again, like you said, they want to save him. They want to make sure he's going to be their workhorse going to the playoffs. So I have no issue with Kamara at six. Like you said, it's just personal preference, honestly, at who you like ahead of him. We're breaking down the top 10 playmakers in the NFL on Blue Hen Sports Cage with Nick DeLaglio, Jake Lampert, on Brandon Hovec. Nick, let's go to your number five, number five okay. playmaker in the NFL. My number five playmaker is the running back from the Los Angeles Chargers, Melvin Gordon. And I think he's just been mm. having a really like low-key type season, sleeper season, where you haven't like seen much from him. Obviously, they play on the West Coast. They play a lot of their games in the 425 slot. But I think he's played great this year. Um both rushing and receiving. I think he's definitely added that dynamic to the Chargers offense, and they look like a good team this year. They're 3-2 and two now, so I think he's going to help them keep rolling. Do you think that's because of the scheme? Because the San Diego Chargers have perhaps the best run game. Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles Chargers. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. Uh, have the best design scheme of the run in the NFL. Their I mean, scheme, yeah, their scheme is good. because They make Austin Eckler mm-hmm. look unreal. Given Austin Eckler's a talented football player, he's great out of the backfield catching the football. But... <laughs> Melvin Gordon is great. Is it because he's a playmaker, or is it because the scheme is just so good? I think it's a little bit of both. I think, obviously, his rookie year was really rough for him, and then, you know, once he started learning that scheme and started to get his foot in the ground, I think he became a lot better of a runner. And I think now he does—he didn't really—he wasn't known for being that well in the passing game, but I think this year he's starting to define himself as that back coming out of the backfield and receiving a couple balls. And I think that adds a whole other dynamic to his game. It doesn't make him Todd Gurley, Alvin Kamara, but I think he's definitely up there with them. And uh, the best playmakers, not only in the running backs, but in the league. Jake, your number five. My number five is the wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons, 
Julio Jones. He is number five on my list. Uh, Nick, you've mentioned it. I think Julio Jones is one of the most overrated players in the NFL. But I also say to everyone I talk to, if my eyes were closed and I have to throw the football to somebody and I hope it gets brought down, if it's not the number one guy on my list, it's Julio Jones. He's just a man amongst boys. He's the second coming of Calvin Johnson. He's my number five. All right. My number five. Let me pull it up here. I had Julio on my list. Number five for me is Adam Thielen of the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, Nick, you had him at mm-hmm. 10. Jake, I'm thinking I might see Thielen on your list. Not going to see Adam Thielen on my Not list. Not on your list. Nope. Okay. Um, league leader in receiving yards yep. to this point in the season. Dude was money last year, over 100 receptions. Uh, maybe not quite the explosiveness as some of the guys who have been on, on my list and will be above him. But if I need a pickup on third down, I don't know if there's a better guy in the game to get the ball to. I agree with him. I think Thielen, uh, he also, like you said, 100 receiving yards in five games. That's never been done, obviously, and he's been really good for, for someone that Someone who was undrafted? Yeah, his story is Actually, incredible. Actually, correction, he's second in the league in receiving yards. Okay. He's five yards behind DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, regardless, his season's been great so far. And you love to see like stories like him, like you said, undrafted. I think he got like a $500 scholarship from like, a D2 <laughs> school or something. So it's great to see him succeed. Um, you want me to give you my f- number four? Yeah, let's go okay. with number four. My number four, uh, I have him as a wide receiver. And a return special, just to clarify that. I have Tyreek Hill from the Kansas City Chiefs. and I like it. How versatile he is. I mean, there's really you can say so much about him, not only receiving, but in the return game. And you can use him out of the backfield, uh, giving him some shovel passes. I mean, his speed is second and none, and he's been great for the Chiefs thus far. My number four, I'll go. I think, Nick, you summarized that well. My number four is a name we've already said, and that is the running back for the New Orleans Saints, Alvin Kamara. My number four is the Giants wide receiver, Odell Beckham Jr. So the first time we see OBJ on the list, I, I assume we're going to see him on your guys' list? You will see OBJ Okay, so I got, I got OBJ the lowest of us. I have him at number four. I'm going to be honest. I made this list so quickly, I didn't put OBJ or Saquon on my list. That says a lot for me. Saquon's fine because he's Saquon's a not on my I, list. I think he's a I'll, great playmaker. If, if they had a better record, I think and he would have uh, that would attribute to him making more plays. I think he'd definitely have on this list, but I didn't put Odell on my list. I don't know if that says much because I'm a Giants fan. Do, but... you, do you think Odell should be on your list? <sighs> I don't know if I probably went. You think he's you think he's a la- less of a playmaker than Joe Mixon? Joe Mixon, Adam. I Thielen. mean, that's far. I mean, he hasn't. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen him ca- catch a ten yard slant and take it to the house yet. So, but did you see him throw that ball? Well, yeah, that's that throw was unreal. <laughs> Maybe that's a I, play. That's a I, play. I also texted my friend uh, for his advice, and he's an Eagles fan. So when I said Odell, he kind of tore me away from it. But I don't know. Uh, Number three, I think we said his name so far from, I think Jake said his name. I have DeAndre Hopkins, uh, yep. Houston Texans. I think that play he made Sunday night to seal the game was one of the greatest <laughs> Two, plays I've ever seen. When you, you play Madden, button. I was yes, about to say, when exactly. you play Madden and you hit that good B button spin, you feel there's it. There's nothing better. There's there is nothing, nothing better in the game of Madden than, than pulling a off a yeah. spin. And you saw it twice on those defensive backs. And he's not, like, the ball is in two hands. Like just, everything's wrong about that play, yeah. and he pulls it off. No, yeah, that's he, a playmaker. Right? No, yeah, that play sealed the deal, and I was like, he's instantly uh, in my top three because I just love that play from him. Yeah, Jake, you're number three. My number three is perhaps my favorite player in the NFL. Golden uh, Tate, not Golden Tate, uh, <laughs> is Todd Gurley, running back for the right. Rams. He has, um, if what well, I mentioned it before when I talked about Le'Veon Bell and Alvin Kamara, I think he's the best two-way running back in football. His passing game has been astronomically above his second year slump he has the most i think he has the most touchdowns from scrimmage i'd be shocked if anyone had him, three last him and camara <laughs> yeah um and i think todd Gurley is just an unreal football player yeah you'll you'll see him on my list mm-hmm. we're breaking down the top 10 playmakers in the nfl each of us compiled our own list we ran through 10 through 6 real quick now we're going one by one as we rank them five through one in the nfl this is blue hen sports cage from 91.3 wvud on my list at number three, I have Saints wide receiver Michael Thomas. Big, big performances the first couple weeks of the season's cooled down a little bit since, but still fourth in the league in terms of receiving yards, second in catches, and he's a guy in that kind of Julio Jones-Bolton uh, build, the mold, if you will, that maybe has a little bit more speed and explosiveness to go up and make the contested catch and then also to get out in space. So I, I, I really like what Michael Thomas has done so far this season. Uh, he, he's number three on my list. Yeah, can't go wrong with Michael Thomas there, I think. Uh, number two on my list, and this can go either way. We've 
you said his name already, Alvin Kamara. I mean, what yeah. got, what can't the guy do? Um, obviously, he came out of Tennessee last year and started playing, and he's just been unreal out of the backfield. Uh, he he catches the ball more than he runs at some games, and I think that's what makes him so special. And he's got a perfect quarterback throwing it to him, and Drew Brees, who uh, had a great week last week. So I like Kamara at number two. My number two is I feel like we're, we've said all of ours, mm-hmm. but uh, is the uh, dynamic return man and wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, Tyreek Hill. Wow. He is. So I had him far lower than the two of you. What'd guys. you have him at? I had him at nine okay. on my list. You had him at three. I had him at four. Four, four, and two. Tyreek Hill, the first time the football touched his hands this season, he ran it for a return touchdown. He is about as dynamic as dynamic gets, and he is the number two on my list. Number two, mentioned him before, DeAndre Hopkins of the Houston Texans. Most plays of any receiver this year above 20 yards. He's got 11 through five games this season. Uh, and the quarterback play has not been consistent for him in previous years or this year. Big DeAndre Hopkins fans fan mm-hmm. uh, over here. No, I definitely agree. I like Hopkins as well. Uh, to close out my list, the name that you guys, I think, both said, uh, Todd Gurley leading the most powerful offense this year and. When he scored three touchdowns last week, he does it not only running it but receiving it, and he just he just brings that type of spice to the field for the uh, Rams, and I think he's easily top ten, uh, number one on my list for top ten playmakers in the NFL. Number one on my list, and it ain't even close, is Odell Beckham Jr., the wide receiver for the New York Giants. There is not a single player that is more polarizing, more talented, more dynamic than Mr. OBJ himself. If you don't think he's the number one playmaker in the NFL, I have minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes of film that you can watch to prove that. I would love to say, and I mean, me being a Giants fan too, I I love Odell. Hopefully he can get it done tonight, though. So we'll see. Well, I mean, he's got plenty of uh, for, for plenty of holes in the Blue, uh, Blue Hen secondary, Eagles secondary to uh, pick through tonight. We'll get to that game in a little bit. My number one guy to wrap it all up is next number one guy, Todd Gurley of the Rams. Uh Dual threat, I value that versatility when I'm looking at a playmaker. He's the best running back in terms of just running the ball up the middle, outside the tackles, and he's probably second or third best receiver as a running back. You know, Alvin Kamara is probably a better receiver. Bell, when he's in game, maybe a little bit of a better receiver than Gurley. David Johnson's in that conversation, but Gurley's right in the mix with those guys. He can really do it all, and he's the focal point of the most explosive offense, or, you know, tied for the yeah. most explosive offense in the NFC. We'll, you can confidently say that, and probably in the NFL. Uh, so that, that values him pretty high on my list. Can we all go around and give one or two honorable mentions? I know Brandon and I, when we were kind of putting our list together on the show, it was like pulling teeth. I've got yeah. eight honorable mentions. Yeah, Brandon has eight honorable mentions, and we would love to run through eight. But maybe let's pick three. Let's pick three quick, just run through, talk about one if you feel like it. Three people that you were your 11... 12 and 13th ranked on your top 10. I think just thinking about now, Odell would definitely be in that 11 to 13 range. One interesting one I thought about was if the Buccaneers kept it going, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Oh, wait, we didn't do quarterbacks. No quarterbacks allowed. Here we go, that's me. I did think about Deshaun Jackson, though. So Odell, Deshaun Jackson, and I even thought about Juju in there. Uh, I think he's emerged uh, really well as a second year receiver uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I think those three guys are probably my honorable mentions. My three honorable mentions uh, first tight end is Travis Kelsey. Then it's Larry Fitzgerald, a player that you might not think of explosive playmakerness, but when you think of the game against Green Bay a few years ago as his, his keystone moment, and he's just done it ever since, Larry Fitzgerald. And my third, a name that will definitely shock both of you, is running back for the Chicago Bears. And no, it's not Jordan Howard. Cohen. It's Tariq Cohen. Wow. As my third most explosive player that didn't make my list. That's fine. I think he fits in that category of Kamara, mm-hmm. of Hill. He's like a poor man's Alvin Kamara. You know, he's got that receiving element. He's probably not as accomplished as a runner as those guys, but I see where you're coming from there, Jake. For me, the name that really was tough to leave off the list was Mike Evans. I'm surprised mm-hmm. that yeah. he didn't make anybody's list. He's another one of those just big receivers who can make plays down the field. He probably should have been on my list instead of Zach Ertz, but I wanted to throw a tight end there yeah. to be fun. Um, then I have Zeke Elliott. We didn't mm. nobody put Zeke Elliott. He's he's, he's started a, to make some catches he, out of the backfield this year too. Bo- he's a boring runner. He he is like <laughs> C.J. Anderson, but just exponentially more talented. He is a boring runner that just believe, gets it done. That, that catch I can't believe make. I'm standing up for the Cowboy here, but and the dude has been a thousand plus in the bank. He's been the silver lining for that offense, which has been very, very bad. So, I mean, uh, I, I can see where you come from there. That one catch he made against the Lions a couple weeks ago was unreal. So, I think 
Uh, that definitely adds to his case. But besides that, I don't think he catches enough out of the backfield for me to, you know, jump out of my seat for him. But he's still a very good Allen rule mention, I think. And then I'll throw in Gronk, uh, yeah. tight end. I don't think Gronk as a playmaker. I think he's just that big body that is unguardable. And when you have Tom Brady throwing you the football, you just elevate yourself. Um, do you have anybody on your list that, like Tariq Cohen, might be just drastically unexpected? Uh, I don't know if he's drastically un- unexpected, but I put Brandon Cooks yeah, on yeah. my yeah. list. I've, he's in that vertical category of the Deshaun Jackson. Yeah, he's probably yeah he he's probably the the guy who you wouldn't expect. I you know put Bell, Travis Kelsey. Yeah. I thought about Saquon, but I don't think Saquon's really made enough plays no, yeah. yet. If you take if you take Jordan list. Howard out of the loop in Chicago and give Tariq Cohen a full time offense, it'd be really interesting to see because he'd be unreal. he'd be very very good.